Uh, we are going to finish chapter 1 of Revelation this morning. We have been looking at this first vision that John the Apostle records as he is exiled on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. John was exiled there under Domitian and remained, as uh, we know from church history, as, as best as we can tell, that John remained on the island of Patmos until Domitian died around the year of AD 96. And according to some early church historians, it was at that point that John the Apostle was allowed to return to the mainland and uh, resume a little bit of ministry uh, in the Ephesus area. But we have for us in this book of Revelation a record of the revelation that was given to John there as he was in exile. It is a book of visions. It's described as a revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 1, which God gave to him to show to his slaves the things which must soon take place. And so John records these visions, the first one being the vision of Jesus Christ that John sees right there on the island of Patmos. It begins in verse 9 and goes all the way to verse 20. John writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned and to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been taken or when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's the first part of this vision. It's a two-part description of what John experienced. We've looked at that already. Then last Sunday, we looked at the second half, or most of the second half of this vision. It begins, the second half does in verse 17 and goes to the end of the chapter, verse 20, and just to review so far what we saw there, we first saw the effect of this vision on John. The beginning of verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. A true apprehension of glory by a creature always brings about a sense of terror and ruin, and that is what happened to John, like Isaiah like Daniel, like the disciples on, Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there is this recognition that there is glory and I am unworthy. 
And that which is made from dirt quickly returns to dirt. That's the effect of the vision, the beginning of verse 17. Then we saw the encouragement of the vision. John records that at that point, this son of man placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus says to John, do not be afraid, I am. Now for one who is an object of mercy, these words are inherently encouraging. Jesus uses four descriptions to describe himself, each one of them in some way related to life and salvation for the object of mercy. For one who is not, of course, these are only further reasons to be terrified Jesus says, I am the first and the last, a reference to his eternality, to his divine nature. He says, I am the living one, a reference to aseity, the fact that Jesus contains life in himself, another expression, a description of his deity. But then he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, a a reference to Jesus' humanity, the incarnate Christ, his victory over death, and then we have the last description, and I have the keys of death and Hades, again tied to his humanity as one who was victorious over death, as the Apostle Paul says that God has demonstrated this man, he has put him on display by giving him the power to judge all mankind, and that's what Jesus refers to here in these words, he has the keys of death and Hades. In his hand, he holds authority to judge death and Hades, a reminder of the curse that came in the garden in Genesis 3.19, where death was promised to all of Adam's descendants. Jesus holds those keys in his hands, but again, to the one who is an object of mercy It is these titles which emphasize life and salvation. We move to the third part of this explanation of the vision. In verse 19, we see the exhortation of the vision, and this is where we'll pick it up this morning. And then finally, we will see in verse 20 the explanation of the vision. The exhortation of the vision, verse 19, is this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And in verse 20, you have this key that is given, this interpretation of a part of the vision that John had not understood. Verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, in both of these verses, verse 19 and and verse 20, we, we have some interpretive difficulties to work through, but they're very important for progressing through the book. Let's look at each one of these. Thirdly, we we see in the second half of this vision, we see the exhortation of the vision where John is commanded to write. The therefore comes there for a reason. After Jesus 
has assured John that he will not be destroyed. After Jesus has assured him that as Jesus appears in his glorious deity and in that glorious humanity, that John will not be ruined, John is given a commission. The therefore comes as a result of the assurance. It's similar to what we find, for example, in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah's commissioning, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees Yahweh on the throne in heaven, and, and, and Isaiah's response is, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then we read that a seraphim comes and takes a burning coal in the hand, from the altar and touches Isaiah's mouth. And then this statement is given, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And Yahweh said, Go and tell this people. After the assurance that is given to John, a commission again is, is given, and it reflects what was given in the first half of this vision as well. Back in verse 11, Jesus had already said to John as he was in that state of paralysis, verse 11 says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. But here in verse 19, there is, there is a development of the contents of what is to be written. In fact, in verse 19, and this is very important for understanding the entire book of Revelation. Back in verse 11, it was a simple, write the things which you see. But now in verse 19, after John has been reassured, the Lord Jesus gives to him a, a threefold summary of the contents of this book. Let's look at that statement. Notice he says this, write the things which you have seen. First of all, it's a reference to something that at that moment has just taken place. It is already, from the standpoint of John, already in the rearview mirror, so to speak. And what that refers to is this opening vision of the glorified Christ that is described in chapter 1, particularly in verses 11 to 18. What John saw with respect to the glorified Christ there on Patmos as Jesus appearing in that description and standing among the seven lampstands and holding the seven stars in his hand, that was the first vision And this is what John was to write, the things which you have seen, chapter 1. But secondly, there is a reference to the things which are. Now, from that moment on, there is something that is going to take place there as Jesus proceeds, still there on Patmos, proceeds to give... John a series of letters to dictate the contents of seven letters. So this second statement, the things which are, points to what we will find now immediately after verse 20 as Jesus goes on to dictate these seven letters. So it's a reference to chapters 
2 and 3. A reference, as we will see when we get into those chapters, of the current state of the churches in Asia Minor, at least these seven churches. It is the things which are the current dealings of the churches, the current health, the current situation of those seven churches. And then third, that's followed up by the third of three descriptions. The things, he says, which will take place after these things. And this is a reference to what comes after the letters. In fact, if you turn to chapter 4, we've heard Pastor John refer to this several times already. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 1, this section begins with these words, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. That phrase that we have back in verse 19 of chapter 1 clearly points to what is then resumed in chapter 4, verse 1. So we understand the book of Revelation that way. Chapter 1 is the things which John had just seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that Jesus will deliver about the state of the church at that moment. And then in chapter 4, all the way through to the end, you have this reference to the things which will take place after these things. So verse 19 is very important. It's really the key that unlocks the structure for understanding the rest of the book. In fact, one commentator writes this. This commission, referring to verse 19, gives the revelatory paradigm for the whole book of Revelation. So how do we we see that? How How do we picture that? You could look at it this way. First of all, from chapter 1, verse 1 to 1, verse 20, in a general sense, are the things which you have seen, a reference to that first vision in particular, but we can treat the whole chapter as under that heading. And the theme there is Christ, the the vision of the glorious Christ. Then you have the second of the three categories, the things which are. It begins in chapter 2, verse 1, and extends all the way to chapter 3, verse 22. It's the seven letters that Jesus gives about the current state of those churches of Asia Minor. And obviously, the theme there is the church, the state of the church. And then you have this major section, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 22, that falls under the heading, the things which will take place after these things. And the theme here is consummation consummation. What we find beginning in chapter 4 verse 1 is the start of the next stage of God's redemptive plan. After the church age, chapter 4 verse 1 begins the next major stage in God's redemptive activity. So verse 19 is is very important. This exhortation that is given to John is, as maybe in your own Bibles, as you mark this up, make sure that verse 19 is, is highlighted because it is kind of the entryway, the key, so to speak, for the rest of the book. How to understand the timing and the general focus of the contents that follow.
follow. Now that leads to the final element of this vision, and it's in verse, it's verse 20, and here we have a, a particularly challenging interpretive issue. You might have already picked it up when I read it earlier this morning, he, but let me begin with this introduction that John re- hears for this particular explanation of the vision. Jesus gives him this, this word. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, what, what, what Jesus does here is he unlocks a mystery for John. This was something that John could not understand even with the help of antecedent revelation. Now remember, as we've been going through this, we note all these, these echoes of Old Testament texts it's, it's full, all this language that we read in chapter 1 of, of the exalted, glorified Christ draws back to pictures described in the Old Testament, whether Daniel or Ezekiel or the Psalms. But there was one element, or two actually, in this, in this vision that, that John couldn't interpret. And Jesus himself calls these elements the mystery. As for the mystery, what does he mean by that? Well, the term mystery means it's something that's locked. It's something that's closed. It's something that humans cannot understand apart from divine revelation. And so that's what, that's what Jesus does here. And he describes the mystery or he identifies the mystery as two things. First of all, the seven stars which John had seen in Jesus' right hand. That's one of them. What are the seven stars? Old Testament texts were not going to help John in understanding this. No matter how well John understood the Old Testament, this particular element of the vision was not understandable. And also the seven golden lampstands, among which John had seen Jesus standing. As we're going to see, these relate to the church. These are, these are elements of the vision that relate to the church that did not have a revelation already prior to this in the Old Testament. And so these are things, these are pictures, images, which Jesus must describe to John for John to understand. So what are these seven stars and seven golden lampstands. Well, one of them is easy to define. Let's start with that. The second one, the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands, these would be stands, as we've already described it, that would have some kind of an oil-burning lantern that would be placed on the top. And John had seen Jesus standing in the midst of these seven lampstands in his vision. Well, Jesus identifies these very clearly. These refer to the seven churches. The seven churches. These churches have already been identified. Back in verse 4, John was told to write to the churches that are in Asia. And then in verse 11, he was told to write to the seven churches. And there, they are identified specifically. The church in Ephesus. And to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were all local churches. 
These were churches that existed that had been planted, some of them decades earlier through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, some of them coming into existence a little after that, but all of them historical churches. The seven lampstands signify those seven churches. And Jesus was seen standing in the midst, showing that he is among his churches, he is with his churches, he is not at a distance, he is not dispassionate about them, but rather he is imminent, he is with them in their midst. The issue that is more difficult to understand, even with Jesus' explanation, is when Jesus describes the seven stars that John had seen in Jesus' right hand. Well, what are the seven stars? To what do they refer? Well, Jesus identifies them as the angels of the seven churches. The, the term is angloi, or in the singular angelos, angel, is how we typically translate that. And that term is very hotly debated among commentators. There's many different suggestions that have been given throughout history, and I'll just take them really and, and boil them down to just two fundamental options. How do we understand this term angel? The first, and generally the most easiest to, to, uh, to uh, understand in, in kind of a literary sense, is to understand these angels as angels, as angelic spirits, because that's how we often translate the term in the New Testament. These are angels. And the argument has been made that these are seven guardian angels, each having responsibility over particular local churches. Now, there's a lot of good reason that some claim to believe this. For example, that term angelos or angeloi is used 60 times throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And after you get past the disputed areas, this term is also going to be used in the letters as John is told to address each letter to the angel of each church. After you move past chapter 3 and into chapter 4, you're going to find this term Angelos, angel, used throughout the book of Revelation some 60 times, always referring to spirit beings. So that kind of is a strong argument. Moreover, if you remember from our reading of Daniel 10 last Sunday, we read of angels that were responsible or over different kingdoms. And since Daniel 10 is so much in, in the, the mind of John as he, as he records this, it's, it's very possible that the idea here is that these are guardian angels just as they were guardian angels of nations in Daniel's time. But here's the problem with this particular view. The idea then is that Jesus reveals these letters, as we will see in, in chapters 2 and 3, He reveals these letters, he dictates them to the Apostle John, who then in turn writes them to angelic beings. And then these angelic beings must deliver these letters to churches, to literal historical churches. And as you can see, that's 
that's a, a problem. In fact, it, it runs into to the problem that we find already earlier in this, this letter, that if you look at verse 1, for example, of chapter 1, it was a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent it and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. When you go further in the book of Revelation, you do have angels that assist John in the explanation of the visions. It's not the other way around. It's not that John communicates to angels what he receives from Jesus, Rather, throughout the rest of of, of the book of Revelation, when angels are involved, their mediatorial activity is to communicate between Jesus and John. And we really have nowhere else in Scripture where any human has been commanded to write or communicate to angels. That's a problem. Moreover, there's a problem in that Each of these angels is identified with a church and included in the exhortation to repent. Most of the seven churches have some serious problems. Most of these seven churches, as we will see, receive the exhortation, the admonishment from Jesus to repent, and that is addressed to the angel himself. And that's a strange thing to consider, that angels would be commanded to repent. Another issue here is that John himself, if we look back at verse 11, John himself was to write the book and personally send it to the seven churches. Not to angels, but directly to the seven churches. So the idea that these are angels is is really difficult to maintain. Are there any other options? And, and there is. There's one other option, and that is to see that this term angelos, or in the plural, angeloi, angels, refers to representatives of these churches. Representatives, human representatives, that were to take back these letters, this book, to their respective churches. In other words, the seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers. In fact, we know that this term, angelos, is used elsewhere minimally, not extensively, but minimally, to refer to human messengers. You have the messengers of of John the Baptist, for example, called angeloi. You have the disciples of Jesus called angeloi. You have John the Baptist himself called an angelos, an angel of God, a messenger of God. In other words, this term messenger was not always exclusively used to refer to spirit beings. It was also used to make reference to human envoys, to to refer to human representatives who would carry a message. This makes sense when we look in the immediate context and see that John is writing to the seven churches directly, verse 4 and and verse 11. Moreover, as we get into the letters and see that the letters are addressed to the angels and those angels are included in the exhortations that are given, it makes sense that they would be human messengers. 
So how do we understand them then? They're probably, these seven angels, these seven messengers, are best understood as representatives from these seven churches that either were being sent to John or already had been sent to John to minister to him on the island of Patmos. Now, there's something important to understand about how the Romans would incarcerate their prisoners. Uh, The Romans did not provide three full meals a day or two meals a day even. They provided nothing. If you were in prison or under house arrest or even exiled on an island, you're on your own. Other people needed to supply your needs. That's one of the reasons why Paul so frequently received guests when he was imprisoned in Rome and why he needed to to receive guests when he was imprisoned the second time in Rome. He, He needed that for his own sustenance. And the same would have been true for John on the island of of Patmos. As he's exiled there, he would be able to receive visitors, and those visitors would provide him with the nourishment and fellowship that he needed to survive as he's there on that island. We have an example of this, for for example, in in, uh, Epaphroditus. He was uh, an envoy, a messenger from the church of Philippi sent according to Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 4, sent to Paul when he was under house arrest in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment. Epaphras of Colossae functioned in the same way, coming to minister to Paul's needs as he was under house arrest in Rome. And the same idea can be understood here as these churches sent messengers sent men, representatives, to go to Patmos and bring John much-needed nourishment, fellowship, updates on the churches, and so on. So as these churches send their envoys, Jesus appears to John to give John the revelation to send back with these envoys to these seven churches. As we come back then to verse 20, we, we pull this all together to understand why does Jesus communicate this way when he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This emphasis, emphasis, this, this emphasis points to the, the sovereignty of the glorious Christ over his church. As the vision of verses 12 to 16, and as the letters of of chapter 2 and 3 will will describe, Christ is not disinterested in the state of local churches. Whether the churches and their people are indifferent, whether they are persecuted and suffering, whether they're compromisers and syncretizing the culture into the church, Jesus exercises in the present time his power to convict, to comfort, and even to close churches. It's going to be one of the things that we notice in the warnings that Jesus gives 
when churches fail and shut their doors, to speak idiomatically, we often think that that is the result of the culture. As we're going to see, Jesus is Lord over the church, and it is He that closes church doors when churches fail and wander and apostatize. That's what we'll see. Jesus is sovereign over the churches. Quote here from John Stott from a little booklet he has on these first three chapters, a helpful little book, What Christ Thinks of the Church. He says this, He, that is Christ, has a right to think and say what he does. In the first place, it is his church. He founded it on the rock and promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. He is its head and the source of its life. In the second place, he knows it intimately. In each of the seven letters, he begins with the words, I know. He walks among the lampstands, patrolling and supervising his churches. He is the chief pastor of his people. Now, as we draw this section to a close, a couple of thoughts that I want to leave with you. First of all, as we emphasized even last week when we saw this vision of the glorified Christ, the question is always, what is my relationship to that Christ? How do I respond to this vision of his glory, it reminds me of what we even read this morning in Psalm 2. As Psalm 2 prophesies of the glory of this Messiah, the ending to the psalm gives us an important warning. The psalm in verse 10 ends this way, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now that is the immediate question we must ask ourselves. Jesus is this glorified God. He is the one who holds life in his hands. He is sovereign over all. And have you come to terms with him? Have you found refuge in him? And for those who find refuge in him, this revelation of Christ is a true comfort. But for those who have not found refuge in him, You have a right to be terrified. You should be terrified. This is the coming Christ. The second main uh, lesson to draw from this is that Christ is not indifferent to the state of his churches. This glorified one stands among the lampstands and holds the messengers in his hand. He is the one who is intimately aware of all that is taking place in his church. And as we will see, he has intimate knowledge of churches 
their state in general as well as the different different members of the church. We're going to see that in each of these letters. He knows the general state, the general spirit of the church, and he knows its individuals. And his response is one of both comfort to those who need comfort, but also judgment and warning and admonishment to those who are not faithful. Let us remember that this is our Christ. And as we sing of his humility in the first advent, let's remember, as we've even heard today in the songs that we have sung, that as we sing of those songs of his first advent, as we look back in history, we cannot help but also look to the future and remember he is coming. In fact, just to close our time today, I thought I would give you a little excursus here on what is known as perhaps the most beloved Christmas carol, which is really not a Christmas carol. But we sing it, and it's a carol that really should point us to the second advent. It's the carol, Joy to the World, by Isaac Watts. Joy to the World authored by Isaac Watts in the 17th century and or beginning of the 18th century, Isaac Watts had a burden for what he saw in the churches as kind of a lifeless worship. He said at one point, he says, to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly while the psalm or the singing is upon their lips, might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of the inward religion. Watts was concerned. At that point, the churches were singing songs from the book of Psalms in their congregations. And Watts looked out on that and saw these lifeless expressions. And so what he did, as part of the 750 hymns which he wrote, He sought to take the language of the Psalms and make them as Christian anthems to incorporate them into the singing of the church. He specifically looked at the Psalms of David and he came up with a collection of Psalms called the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament. Other psalms or other hymns that he wrote include, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, Jesus Shall Reign. I think there's 18 of Watts's hymns in our grace hymnal, and Joy to the World is one of them, and it has become, as I noted already, perhaps one of the most beloved Christmas carols. But as I said, it was not originally intended as a Christmas hymn. Certainly after its publication in 1719, it was adopted by post-millennialists who at that time were very influential. It was reinterpreted, it was spiritualized, and then used as an anthem to refer to the first advent of Christ. Now remember, post-millennialism believes that most of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. Essentially everything up to, to chapter 19 verse 10, everything up to the second coming of Christ, and everything in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, speaking of the reign of the Messiah on the earth, that has already been 
fulfilled. The kingdom of Christ is already here on earth. It is expanding and it will eventually overtake the entire world. Thus, Christ's first advent set in motion for post-millennialists the present reality and joy to the world describes that reality for them. In fact, this hymn, Joy to the World, became a very popular hymn for the modern missions movement as they, saw, as, as they believed that the expansion of the gospel around the world was evidence that Christ was reigning according to Revelation 20 in this world. But what's important to note is that Watts based the lyrics off of uh, the, the, the lyrics of, of Joy to the World off of Psalm 98, which he wrote or which he read or interpreted proleptically. What do we mean by that? It means we describe things in the present, but refer, but, but they refer to things actually in the future. Now, before I go through the quickly through the the hymns or the stanzas of Joy to the World, uh, let's look at Psalm 98 very quickly. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains. The world and all who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to the earth to judge. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalm there, as it ends, particularly points to the coming of the Lord to the earth. And what Isaac Watts did was build off his hymn, off of this last affirmation. Now let's look now at the hymn itself and notice the emphases that that Isaac Watts intended. First stanza, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now some renditions state the Lord has come. That's actually not how Watts wrote it. The Lord is come. It's a a prophetic present. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. There the emphasis is on the second coming, the reception of the king. Then stanza two, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. A reference there even to Isaiah and the prophecy of tremendous agricultural blessings that come from the coming of the Messiah. Stanza three, 
No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The language there is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, as well as many other prophecies in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, when he would come to put his feet on this earth and rule, the effects of the curse would be suspended. The effects of the curse, as, as Watts refers to here, they would be suspended and you'd have this period of tremendous agricultural and human thriving. It goes, that, that blessing of the returned Messiah goes as far as that curse. And then finally, we see the confessed splendor of this rule, verse or stanza four, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. What Isaac Watts saw was not the first advent, but the second. And we know this even from some of his other writings. One of his other hymns is Jesus Shall Reign, Again, speaking of the second coming and other various statements that Isaac Watts made. And one of those is this, and we'll end with this one. Isaac Watts wrote a stanza with these words. How long, dear Savior, oh, how long shall this bright hour delay? Fly swift around ye wheels of time and bring the welcome day. That should be our response as well, even as we read of this glorified Christ, as we read of who he is and his deity and glorified humanity. It should be our greatest desire that the day of his appearing would come soon. If that isn't your desire, you don't know Christ well enough. Because if you know him and you have come to taste of his glories, your biggest desire would be to see him. May that be ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have revealed to us this wonderful, wonderful plan of redemption, that you would send your son first of all in humility to take upon himself our sin so that we might have his life. And then he is coming again. You are sending him again to this earth to bring retribution, justice, to show his rule and reign upon this planet, to do what the first Adam could not. Father, we long for that day when all that is wrong will be made right, and we pray that you would only further that desire within us. And as it does, as that desire grows, we know that it will purify us and prepare us for that day. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.